in February of this year, 2013, I was invited to be the speaker at a Bible conference held by Church of the Redeemer in Mesa, Arizona. The topic for the weekend was titled, Theistic Evolution, A Sinful Compromise. During that conference, I gave a series of four lectures. There was far more material than I could deal with in just four lectures. I have since expanded those initial four lectures into a total of 11 messages of which you are listening to one of these. I encourage those who are listening to these messages to visit my publishing website, which is at triumphantpublications.com, and read for free a written version based on all of these 11 messages. These messages are being compiled into a published book entitled Theistic Evolution, A Sinful Compromise. This published book will soon be available by mid-June of this year, 2013. My website will guide you on how to purchase a hard copy when available if you so choose. If you don't want to purchase a hard version, you can read the transcript of the book by simply going to my website and clicking on the appropriate box titled Theistic Evolution, A Sinful Compromise Transcript. Also on my publishing website, I have listed links to all the audio messages found on sermonaudio.com under the general topic, Theistic Evolution and Sinful Compromise. May the Lord bless you as you listen and or read about this very dangerous view that is gaining ground, unfortunately, among certain churches and institutions. The visible church of the Lord Jesus is experiencing tremendous challenges from many sectors. The issue of the federal vision theology is still a very real menace to the church, a theology that challenges some of the precious doctrines of the Reformation and attacks the very nature of the gospel. Another doctrine under attack is the doctrine of creation that is coming in the form of what is called theistic evolution. It is a growing thread among those churches and institutions that refer to themselves as reformed. The notion of theistic evolution is but a manifestation of an increasing worldliness that is infecting the visible church, and it constitutes a sinful compromise, as I will seek to prove. One of the largest evangelical Presbyterian denominations in the country, the PCA, the Presbyterian Church in America, that is, originally scheduled to allow two men from the Solid Rock Lectures to come to the 2012 General Assembly being held in Louisville, Kentucky, and hold a seminar for its delegates. As their website states, Solid Rock Lectures is an organization dedicated to, what they say, understanding old earth creation and its biblical basis. Only one of the representatives was able to conduct the seminar. This man has written a book titled, When Faith and Science Collide. Well, what is theistic evolution? One of the organizations known as Biologos promotes itself as evangelical, but it adopts this view of theistic evolution. I will deal in greater detail with this organization in another lecture. But for the time being, 
Here's what they say about themselves on their website. Quote, We at Biologos believe that God used the process of evolution to create all the life on earth today. Biologos calls itself evolutionary creationists as opposed to atheistic evolutionists. We at Biologos agree with the modern scientific consensus on the age of the earth and evolutionary development of all species, seeing these as descriptions of how God created. End of quote. As I will bring out later, I consider Biologos as one of the greatest dangers to biblical Christianity in our time. They have seriously compromised the truth of Scripture and have wed the Christian faith with the views of evolutionary theory. Is theistic evolution compatible with the Christian faith? There is a growing number of churches that think it is, but theistic evolution is a sinful compromise with the world that has abandoned sound exegesis, that is, principles of interpretation, for the sake of accommodation to what is considered, quote, scientific fact. To hold to a six-day, 24-hour day creation and to a young earth view of approximately 6,000 years based on biblical chronology is now considered in many sectors as intellectual foolishness, even in church circles, despite the fact that for centuries such a view was a general consensus for the Christian church. What has happened? What has happened is that the rise of Darwinism in the mid-19th century has forever changed the world. Darwin was not the first to postulate a view of origins in opposition to Scripture, but the publication of his book, Origin of Species, in 1859, arrived at a time where the philosophical climate was ripe for a view of the world that was in direct opposition to the God of Scripture. We have for some time been told that the issue is science versus faith, that scientific discovery is a trustworthy explainer of the origin of the universe and life. Well, what has happened is that much of modern science has been kidnapped by evolutionary thought. While various groups like Biologos insist that they hold to the authority of Scripture and that science isn't on par with Scripture per se, they give but what I call lip service to the authority of Scripture, akin to Roman Catholicism's view that says that they hold to two authorities, Scripture and tradition. I don't know how many men... I've read that are either theistic evolutionists or sympathetic to the view that have said, and I'm paraphrasing, oh, we believe in the Bible, that it's authoritative, but when it comes to a sound interpretation of Scripture, we cannot and must not ignore the testimony of science. In other words, these men are saying, our hermeneutic, our principles of Bible interpretation, must not be in stark contrast to what scientists say. Hence, the early chapters of Genesis must not ignore what the biological sciences say as an undeniable fact, namely, that evolutionary thought is a scientifically proven fact.
So that's what they say. A whole series of lectures that I'm giving on the subject of theistic evolution, I'm going to address just how factual evolutionary thought is and some amazing admissions from evolutionists, even from Charles Darwin himself. I unabashedly declare that sola scriptura, scripture alone, that is, is the only authority of understanding the world. The modern evangelical church, which includes some professing reformed churches, have compromised the precious doctrine of creation at the altar of Darwinism. Jesus confronted the Pharisees, recorded in Matthew 15, with setting aside the law of God for the sake of their man-made traditions. Theistic evolution is a man-centered theology designed to fit into modern concepts of the origin of the universe and of all life forms on earth. The doctrine of creation is no minor doctrine of Scripture. It is important if the early chapters of Genesis are indeed historical facts. The very nature of redemption is linked with the doctrine of creation. Jesus is presented in the New Testament as the second or last Adam. A historic Adam is paramount to gospel truth. One man that I'll discuss later, Peter Enns, a former professor of Old Testament at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, believes that one does not even need a real historical Adam in order for there to be a real historic Jesus who was raised from the dead for our salvation. The only real question before us is this. What does the scripture say independent of what modern science supposedly says? I reject the false dichotomy often presented to us in the notion science versus faith. There's no conflict with true science in the Bible. Yes, there is a conflict with science falsely so-called in the Bible. There is a conflict with certain, quote, scientists, but there's no conflict with true science. Who created the universe? Who created the facts of the universe? God did. The real facts of science will never contradict the Bible. God interprets the facts for us. God has revealed to us in the pages of Scripture the truth of his universe. There are two forms of revelation, general and special. General revelation pertains to what God has revealed to us in his creation. And special revelation pertains to what God has revealed to us in his written word, the Bible. Theistic evolutionists, while acknowledging the existence of both forms of revelation, make the grievous error that somehow general revelation is on par with special revelation and that modern science, namely biological evolution, is an accurate conveyor of the truth of general revelation. Like all other theological issues, it will always come down to hermeneutics, that is, our, the principles of interpretation. Theistic evolutionists insist that the early chapters of Genesis were never meant to be understood as being an accurate historical account of the origin of the cosmos. 
These innovators insist that the right hermeneutical approach to Genesis is to be understood more in line with a poetic view, a storytelling view, never intended to be taken literally, as it may appear. So, the question comes down to, like so many issues, whose hermeneutic is correct? Is it the theistic evolutionist? Or is it the view that our Westminster standards hold? Yes, I'm saying that our confessional documents, those that most Presbyterian and Reformed churches hold to, just like my church, express a view that was the general consensus of the church for 18 centuries, leading up to the 19th century. I shall seek to prove that our Westminster standards adopted a view that God created the cosmos out of nothing by the word of his power in the space of six days and all very good. I shall seek to demonstrate that the Westminster divines did believe in a literal six-day creation, with the days of creation being a 24-hour period, and that they did believe in a biblical chronology that expresses a young view of the earth, they essentially agreed with Bishop James Usher's biblical chronology. I will seek to demonstrate that a faithful interpretation of Scripture demands the rejection of all forms of evolutionary thought. There is no reconciling of Scripture with Darwinism. There is no justification for making a subtle distinction between embracing a philosophy of evolution Darwinian or Neo-Darwinian evolution with the science of evolution. This misleads people as to the real views of men and institutions. The average church member doesn't know what this fine distinction means. They assume that various professors in their denominational seminaries are not evolutionists simply because these professors say that They do not embrace the philosophy of evolution while all along actually embracing an evolutionary view of man's origin. I've been told that the only sure way of spotting counterfeit money is not by spending time studying counterfeit money. No, the way to spot the counterfeit is to carefully study the real thing. If you know the real thing, The counterfeit is obvious. So in the first chapter, or this first lecture, I will examine the real thing. We will see how the scripture explicitly states that God created ex nihilo, meaning out of nothing, all that there is. And having created earthly matter, God instantaneously made Adam from the dust of the earth, and then formed Eve instantaneously from an actual rib from Adam. He did not use a process called evolution to create the world. Any contrary view to ex nihilo creation robs God of his glory and elevates man as the judge of Scripture. God is sovereign, and God is accountable to no one. His word is law, and we must bow to his authority as revealed in Scripture. An evolutionary view 
is a radical departure from sound exegesis that does great damage to the faith of many, especially young people going off to college. Once a person begins going down the path of denying the historicity of parts of the Bible that have been interpreted as and should be understood as historical narratives, he or she has begun a downward spiral. Evolutionary thinking is the great tool of the devil to deceive many. Evolutionary thinking is very much akin to the sin of our first parents, who in the Garden of Eden decided not to believe God and became autonomous thinkers. By autonomous thinkers, I mean those who think that man can independently decide for himself what is reality, what is truth. That is exactly what our first parents did. But who was seducing Eve? Satan was in the serpent, deceiving her, the Bible says. As Jesus said in John chapter 8, Satan, the devil, has been a liar and a murderer from the beginning. In Satan seducing the Eve, Satan said, Has God really said that you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? Satan said that she would not die if she ate, and if she ate, she would be like God, knowing good and evil. As Scripture says, Eve saw that the fruit was good for food, the light to the eyes, and able to make one wise. Therefore, she ate and gave it to her husband. But guess what? Satan was a liar after all. They did incur death, immediate spiritual death, and eventually physical death. And yes, his seducing lies made the devil a murderer, just like Jesus said. But those delegates at the PCA General Assembly who attended the seminar by this man from Solid Rock Lectures who advocated an old earth view of creation, who do you think was there whispering in their ears, has God really said? When your dear children, who are raised in your covenant homes, go to college, even some ostensibly Christian colleges, and they hear their professors advocate a form of evolutionary thought, Satan is there, Whispering in your children's ears, has God really said? And when your children hear, and when church members hear someone saying, Oh, we don't really have to have a historic Adam. Adam could have been one of many hominids, that is, ape-like creatures that somehow God made them God-conscious. We can believe that man did not did actually evolve from such ape-like creatures. Oh, but Jesus, he's still real. He really did rise from the dead on the third day. All along, Satan is there whispering in their ears. Adam was not real. Or since Adam was an ape-like creature, why must you think that Jesus was real? Have you ever seen men rise from the dead? Come on. That's very unscientific. Come on. Since you're being told that Adam descended from lower forms of life, 
then your precious Jesus, as a real man, has the DNA of lower forms of life in him. That's what the devil says. Consequently, Satan begins to sow seeds of doubt that can be devastating, especially to those not rooted in the faith. And so the seeds of doubt are sown by the liar and the murderer, who, as the scripture says of him in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Well, who are Satan's messengers? In this case, it's not the demonic realm whom he leaves, but his messengers, though they don't even realize it, are those who want to compromise the truth of Scripture by advocating a view of origins that robs the Lord God of his glory, robs man of his dignity as being made in the image of God a little lower than God. A word of exhortation is needed to my fellow willing and teaching elders. What is one of our foremost duties as elders according to the scripture? It is to protect God's precious sheep from the wolves in sheep's clothing who will devour the flock if they could. Titus chapter 1 verses 9 through 11 says concerning the duty of elders, quote, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, that he may be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. End of quote from the Word of God. Now, do I lump all those together as wolves who are not advocating a view of creation as presented in our confessional standards? Not exactly. Some are far worse than others. There are those who may not believe the days of creation are literal days, the long ages, but who still insist that evolutionary thought is wrong. These men, I believe, are sincerely wrong. It is a very dangerous position to hold because one simply cannot do justice to Scripture to a true understanding of biology by holding to an old earth view. To maintain that the days of creation are but long geological ages of millions of years creates all kinds of immense problems. Those that I am really addressing are those who do advocate an evolutionary view, who do believe that man did evolve from lower forms of life, and who do teach that God used that means to supposedly create. These men are the ones who must be silenced. They're disturbing families, and in obedience to Jude 3, we elders must earnestly contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. This is my purpose in my whole series on theistic evolution. A, a simple compromise. We must understand the spiritual danger that has come to the visible church to identify some of those fiery arrows that Satan launches against Jesus' church to help us put up that shield of faith to stop those arrows. As a preacher of the gospel, 
who has been called to herald the message of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, I affirm with God's authority that his scripture is true, that it's the only authority for faith and practice that can be trusted. We don't need any capitulation to science falsely so-called. We don't need to cater to a worldview born in rebellion against God. And yes, in one of my lectures, I will demonstrate to you just how this evolutionary view was conceived and born in rebellion to God. Evolutionary thinking is one of the major tools of the devil to wreak havoc in the Lord's church. My dear fellow elders, we must not keep silent, but we must silence those who would assault the glory of God in the doctrine of creation. We must proclaim from the highest hill that God has revealed his truth in Scripture. This may be a poor analogy, but what dog is worth his room and board, but who doesn't at least bark when his master's home is invaded? We must not let the compromisers of God's doctrine of creation gain any foothold, because if they do, the damage will be immense. If you let the fox into the hen house, what's going to happen? I assure you the fox, in time, will eat all of the hens. I will be mentioning specific names and institutions during these series of lectures that I believe have compromised on the doctrine of creation. I don't seek to be unnecessarily combative. I don't go looking out, looking uh, for theological fights, per se. But I will bark when my Lord's glory is assaulted. When men publish articles, when they write books and give comments on blog sites, in a public forum, at this point, their views can be publicly scrutinized, and that's exactly what I'm doing. I write books, and when I write books, I'm fully aware that I put my neck out every time. And I must be willing to defend what I write. And I shouldn't be offended if someone wants to publicly take issue with me. Not that they have. Unfortunately, some people think that any public critique of a public view is violating the Ninth Commandment, which says, Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Well, public criticism of a public view is not a violation of the Ninth Commandment. And when I quote men in context from their own books, from their own websites, etc., I'm not violating the Ninth Commandment. If that were true, then the prophets were guilty of transgression. John the Baptist and the Apostle Paul were guilty then. And finally, Jesus, the Lord of glory, would have sinned, which is impossible, when he publicly rebuked the Pharisees, scribes, and Sadducees. No, I and many others view theistic evolution as a serious compromise of biblical truth. And left unchallenged, inestimable damage can be done to the visible church. Having said all of this, let's now delve into the doctrine of creation as set forth in Scripture, a doctrine of creation advocated by the Westminster Standards. As I said earlier, the issue 
always comes down to hermeneutics, how to properly interpret the Bible. Again, those wanting to advocate some kind of evolutionary view want to give an interpretation that rejects a natural, literal, plain meaning of the text in favor of some poetic form whereby the words of the text are not to be taken as we normally would take them, such as the meaning of days and dust. Interestingly, the normative approach toward the early chapters of Genesis has been to understand it as historical narrative, not as some vague poetic story. As we shall see, the Westminster divines definitely understood the early chapters of Genesis as historical narrative. Before we look into the meaning of days and the chronology of the Bible, let's consider some basic principles of Bible interpretation. One of the major contributions of the Protestant Reformation was their insistence on the plain meaning of Scripture. The great reformer Martin Luther once said, quote, The Holy Spirit is the plainest writer and speaker in heaven and earth, and therefore his words cannot have more than one, and that the very simplest sense, which we call the literal, ordinary, natural sense. End of quote. There cannot be more than one meaning in any given context. Also, the meaning of words such as days and dust can have only one meaning in any given context. Now, words can't change their meaning when found in different contexts. One of the best examples of this is the meaning of the word world. It can mean Several things, four things, in fact. It can mean the actual planet Earth. Or it can mean the inhabitants of the world. Or it can mean a reference to a particular group of people. Or, in a negative sense, it can refer to a system of belief in rebellion against God, like is found in 1 John 2.15, which says, Love not the world. Neither the things that are in the world. But in any particular passage, the word world has only one of these meanings. Another vital principle of interpretation is one that is brought out by our Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 1, section 9, which says, quote, The infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself, and therefore, when there's a question about the true and full sense of any scripture, which is not manifold but one, it must be searched and known by other places that speak more clearly. In the quote. Also we read in the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 1, section 10, it says, quote, The Supreme Judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined, can be no other but the Holy Spirit speaking in the Scripture. End of quote. In any of these comments from the Westminster Confession of Faith, do we find that the latest findings of science are to be the filter by which we determine the meaning of Scripture? Of course not. Is there any appeal to the surrounding origin stories of Mesopotamia 
to give us insight to the meaning of Scripture? Of course not. The primary error of those today who are advocating an evolutionary approach is that they are casting dispersion on the doctrine of Scripture, namely its sole authority in faith and practice. Now, I am fully aware that these men openly state that they fully subscribe to the authority of Scripture. But what matters is not what they say, it's how they function. Though claiming allegiance to sola scriptura, these men do not practice submission to it. For all those Reformed churches that recognize the Westminster Standards as part of the constitution of their church, it is vital to understand what the Westminster divines understood by their doctrine of creation, particularly the meaning of the word create and the meaning of the word days in Genesis chapter 1. The opening general statement of the Westminster Confession of Faith on creation is seen in chapter 4, section 1, which reads, quote, It pleased God the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, for the manifestation of the glory of His eternal power, wisdom, and goodness, in the beginning to create, or make of nothing, the world, and all things therein, whether visible or invisible, in the space of six days, and all very good. End of quote. From this statement, we learn what the Westminster divines understood about God's act of creation. By the term create, it means being made out of nothing. This is drawn from the testimony of various texts of Scripture. A common Latin term for God's creative work is called creatio ex nihilo, meaning creation out of nothing. Some theologians do distinguish between what they call, quote, immediate creation, that is, ex nihilo out of nothing, from, quote, immediate creation, that is, God used a substance already created ex nihilo to create something additional. An example of immediate creation would be God using the dirt already created to form man. At this point, the theistic evolutionists want to grab hold here and say, Ha! See? See? God used the dirt to create man, which we are simply saying, theistic evolutionists, that is, are saying, this is a simplified, scientifically ignorant Hebrew way of saying that God used evolution to make man over millions of years. Wow. I'm sorry, but... I had no idea that all of that content was in that phrase, God formed man from the dust of the earth. And if you were to do a word study of dust and how it's normally used, it means dust. As you and I would understand dust. And by doing that, we are interpreting scripture by scripture. We are attempting to see how words are most commonly used, and whether that is the usage in the passage under consideration. 
from a biblical position, God's fashioning man was still instantaneous, even though he used dust that he had already created. And Eve was made from a real rib of Adam, all on the same six-day, 24-hour period. Theistic evolutionists, however, say that days don't have to be 24-hour periods. They could be millions of years. To which we say to these theistic evolutionists, you're twisting the plain meaning of the words to fit into your cosmic scheme. And I say to them, your hermeneutic is absurd. Words then, in your mindset, can mean whatever you want them to mean. The deliberate alteration of the plain meaning of terms is at the basis of the corruption of the Bible to adopt a view that is the personal preference of the interpreter. For the evolutionist, science is ruling. Science is dictating how scripture should be understood. Well, then who is the real authority? Pseudoscience, quote, evolution, is the real authority. And yes, I'm declaring de facto that evolutionary thinking is a pseudoscience, meaning a false science. I remember what Time magazine said in its article when the Hubble telescope was sent into space uh, to provide us a closer look at the universe in the 1990s. The opening line of the article made me, I trust, righteously angry. The opening sentence read, quote, In the beginning was matter, end of quote. Now this was an obvious slap at Genesis 1-1, which says, In the beginning, God. Atheistic evolutionary thinking is rooted in the pagan notion of the eternality of matter. For them, matter has always existed. And some 14.5 billion years ago, and the age keeps changing, mind you, according to the evolutionists, a particle, I mean a small particle of matter that they call the God particle, exploded into a, what they call the Big Bang. And so the universe came into existence of its own doing. And if you are an atheistic evolutionist, or if you are a so-called Christian evolutionist, and I use that term Christian evolutionist very loosely, God caused the particle to explode. Sadly, the so-called Christian evolutionist accepts the fundamental premise of the atheist on the origin of the universe. I don't know about you, but every explosion I've ever seen brings forth chaos. It doesn't create an incredibly organized set of laws of physics that govern the orbits of planets. It doesn't create all the elements of the periodic table. The Big Bang can hardly provide some kind of inherent energy for, for life to spontaneously generate. Why is it so difficult for men to accept that the universe came into existence by a rational being, God?
who by the word of his power brought it all about out of nothing. Why is that so hard to believe? Nowhere in the scripture does it say that God caused some very dense particle of matter to explode. But men would rather choose irrational chance than a rational being, God. Men think this way because they walk in darkness. As Jesus said in John chapter 3, they hate the light and love the darkness and do not come to the light lest their deeds be exposed by the light. Unbelieving man hates God, and he will, as Romans chapter 1, verse 18 and following says, that he will suppress the truth and unrighteousness. In his heart of heart, he knows there's a God, but he willfully chooses to ignore what he clearly sees in the creation. The biblical text, or one of the biblical texts, for creation out of nothing, is found in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3, which reads, By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. This verse is tremendous because it establishes several things. It describes God's creative power. God prepared the worlds by his word. As we shall see from other texts, God spoke and it was done. Exegetically, it is unwarranted and unsound to make the phrase, quote, prepared by the word of God to even remotely imply some long process. The term ex nihilo refers to the phrase, what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. Now, it is true that Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, does say that God began with dirt to create Adam. And later, God will cause a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. And he will literally take a rib from Adam's side and fashion a woman and then bring her to Adam. The scripture states that Adam declared, as recorded in Genesis 2, verse 23, And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now to demonstrate that this is literal, with the marks of being a historical narrative, Genesis 2.21 says that God closed up the flesh of Adam where he took the rib. Now that sounds rather literal, don't you think? Would this not imply that this is the plain meaning of the text? It doesn't have the typical figurative expressions that we see in the wisdom literature of the Bible, such as God owning the cattle on a thousand hills, or where it says the mountains are clapping for joy. That's figurative language, and it's quite evident that it is. But that's not what you find in the early chapters of Genesis. Evolutionary thought directly attacks the creation of man, male and female, and can never be reconciled with the Genesis account. Inspired Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, 
believes in an actual historical Adam and Eve, and his basis for forbidding women to have authority over men in the church goes back to this created or creation ordinance. The male has authority over the female because, as 1 Timothy 2.13 states, Adam was created first, then Eve. And secondly, Eve was deceived by the devil, not Adam. But this doesn't absolve Adam of guilt, for the Bible says sin came through Adam. Adam created first, then Eve? How does this fit into an evolutionary scheme? Kind of hard, isn't it, from an evolutionary perspective? The Apostle Paul states in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 7 through 9, he says, quote, For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. End of quote from the word of God. Man's God, given authority over woman, is not found in any evolutionary scheme. In fact, the whole notion of the sexes is really an enigma to evolutionary thinking. Why is there sexual reproduction in the first place? Asexual reproduction should make more sense from an evolutionary perspective, which, by the way, is found in a few lower forms of life. An organism that can self-replicate on its own is independent and doesn't need an opposite sex to perpetuate the species, and that would be of great evolutionary advantage. Just how did a male and female hominid evolve simultaneously, whereby each sex has not only its unique anatomical features that are designed particularly to be able to reproduce a new organism, but why is the DNA genetic material, the sex chromosomes that is, divided evenly between both male and female, so that it takes the 23 chromosomes of the male combined with the 23 chromosomes of the female to form a new human being. Kind of amazing, isn't it? Kind of incredible if evolution is true, would you not think? Evolution in its denial of God cannot escape something that takes the place of deity. It's called Mother Nature from an evolutionary scheme. One only has to watch some National Geographic special or some episode of Planet Earth and the like to see the reverence and constant appeal to, quote, Mother Nature. Oh, Mother Nature has done so marvelously in structuring creatures to be so adaptive. Oh, Mother Nature provides for her offspring. In short, Men who walk in darkness simply exchange the glory of God as the creator for four-footed creatures, as Romans says. Hence, they worship and serve the creature rather than the true God. It's incredible to hear these documentaries apply to Mother Nature, the glorious perfections 
that only the true and living God possesses. Actually, the notion of Mother Nature is the most ancient of pagan religions, where in so many cultures there is the worship of the sun. In these various pagan cultures, there is the view that the sun is the male generating principle, impregnating the earth, which is the female principle, to bring forth its vegetation. As these evolutionary programs extol the incredible abilities of Mother Nature, who does all of this by pure chance, mind you, I have always maintained that Mother Nature, what, she ought to play the Powerball lottery, because she definitely is the luckiest uh, entity of all times to always get it so right, so that life is this marvelous uh, uh, display that we see. Well, let's get back to the biblical account of the creation of Adam and Eve. Not only did inspired Paul believe in the special creation of Adam and Eve, but our Lord Jesus believed in a historical Adam and Eve. In Matthew chapter 19, in his divorce legislation, Jesus said in chapter 19, verses 4 and 5, where it's written, quote, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And for this cause a man shall leave his father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. End of Jesus' quote. The whole marriage institution affirmed by Jesus has its roots in the days of creation, the sixth day specifically. In speaking about Jesus, the scripture affirms that God the Father created the world through the agency of the eternal Son of God. Several passages that bring this great truth out are John 1, verses 1 through 3, which says, quote, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and all things came into being by Him, and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. End of quote from the Word of God. The verb tense for the phrase, or the verb, came into being, in verse 3, is the Greek aorist tense, denoting a one-time, completed action coming into existence. It doesn't teach some long process by which life came into existence from some primordial seed of its own latent power. Also, Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 through 17 reads, quote, For by him, that is referring to Jesus, the Son of God, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. End of quote from the Word of God. The Hebrew word, bara, is translated as created in our English versions. This word created is used in Psalm 145, verse 5, to refer to God's creation of the heavens and of the angels. 
In Isaiah chapter 43, verse 7, the sure, the same word is used, and the text says, quote, Everyone who is called by my name, and whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. End of quote from the Word of God. These evolutionists want to take God fashioning Adam from the dust and Eve from Adam's rib as a literary device not to be taken at face value. In other words, not in the plain sense of the words as an important hermeneutical principle. Apparently, we can get quite creative, pun intended, in how we interpret Genesis 1 verse 26 and Genesis 2 verses 7 and 21. The evolutionists, even Christian evolutionists, say that we need the testimony of modern biology, i.e. Darwinism, to properly interpret these biblical texts. Really? I really need science? I really need Darwinism to do that? And why do I need Darwinism to do that? And why must we not take the plain meaning of the words of Genesis? And why must we say that the terms, quote, from dust and, quote, from Adam's rib, why must we obviously think that they mean biological evolution from single-celled organisms to man himself? Why am I supposed to believe that? Wow. I wish I had that specific code to the Bible they have, instead of the plain meaning of the words, that is, that which they give is the supposed meaning. The meaning of creating man in God's image from the dust and breathing into him the breath of life means man's random evolutionary development over millions of years from all lower forms of life. Well, this sure sounds like eisegesis, reading into the text a personal preference rather than exegesis, pulling out of the text the meaning of biblical authors. The only reason to adopt such a view is because science, even atheistic science, is the guide or clue to Scripture. The Bible must bow before the all-knowing altar to Darwin to demonstrate how such an interpretation of man's creation in terms of evolutionary thought is refuted by the Scripture itself, let's consider 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 38 and 39. The context here is the difference between earthly and heavenly bodies. The text reads, quote, But God gives it a body just as he wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of men and another flesh of beasts and another flesh of birds and another of fish. End of quote from God's Word. Sure sounds like what Genesis 1 says, where God created each creature distinct and instantaneously in a specific period of time, doesn't it? Is this allowing Bible, the Bible to interpret itself? Absolutely. Is this how we should conduct exegesis, comparing Scripture with Scripture? 
Absolutely. Or, is an evolutionary scheme the best hermeneutic, whereby one totally changes the meaning of biblical words to fit into the supposedly findings of science? Hardly. Again, the only reason that 18 centuries of Bible exegesis is set aside is due to the rise of a view in the 19th century designed in its inception to rid itself of God and being accountable to this God. In another lecture, I will conclusively prove this from the evolutionists' own words what their intent was. Men will do all kinds of things to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They will willfully ignore what is obvious to them. The world will not have the God of Scripture, and grievously, professing Christians bow to this altar of biological science to reinterpret the Bible to fit into this God-hating worldview. And that is what evolution is. It is a worldview based on a faith in rebellion to God. Whereas, the Bible explicitly states in Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27, that God created man, male and female, in his own image. This is what separates man from the rest of creation. This is what separates man from the animals. While there are some anatomical similarities with animal life and man, man is clearly distinct. We read in Psalm 8, it refers to man's inherent dignity. And it refers to that dignity when we read in Psalm 8, verses 4 through 6, quote, What is man that you should take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. End of quote from the Word of God. <clears throat> man is not an animal. He did not descend from lower forms of life. Man has a unique dignity because man is made in God's image. Man is a vice-regent, a co-ruler, that is, under God. And, and he is made a co-ruler in God's created realm. Man was made to have dominion over the creatures, which is why there is a certain fear that the creatures have of man. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 24 refers to redeemed man having the marred image of God in him restored in Christ. The image of God being said to be holiness, righteousness, and truth. This is the essential element of being made in God's image. Man is a spiritual being, made to have communion with the God of the universe. But there are other unique things about man created in God's image. Only man communicates through symbolic language. Yes, animals communicate in some form, but not through words. Man has the capacity to think symbolically with words. Talking parrots manifest what scientists call mimicking, but this is not verbal symbolic communication. Only man can leave a history in writing, 
because only man is unique. Also, man has a capacity to appreciate beauty. Why do we find brilliant sunrises and sunsets beautiful? Do you see animals sitting at the beach, watching the sun coming up over the waters? You might say, well, my dog sits on the beach with me watching the sun come up over the waters, casting its brilliant display of colors against the clouds. Well, your dog may be sitting by you, but I can assure you, your dog is thinking, if he's thinking at all, he's thinking about what is in the surf that he can attack because you failed to feed him that morning. Speaking of humans, why do we hang portraits in our homes? Why do we have things simply for aesthetic purposes? And by the way, why do we find things beautiful? Someone might say, well, they... They just are. John, that's a stupid question. Well, it's not a stupid question. Why are things beautiful? They're beautiful because we were made in his, his image to appreciate the beauty of God. Now, let's consider for a moment the female gender of humans. After all, Eve saw that the fruit was beautiful and was seduced in this one respect along with other areas. Speaking of women, I think there's a particularly strong sense of beauty in this sex. And, as I've said numerous times, for all practical purposes, guys would be content to live in a shack or a cave. And the definitive proof of this, just take a look at a bachelor's pad sometime. When you walk into the typical bachelor's pad, you often see drab things. Rarely do you see any flowery things. Rarely do you see things of beauty on the walls. And your immediate thought is, my, my, you pitiful creature, you really need some help. Man has been endowed with great dignity and honor. By virtue is creation in God's image. And this is why capital punishment is established in Genesis 9, verse 6. For it says that if man sheds another man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. This is why the proliferation of evolutionary thought and its modus operandi of, quote, the survival of the fittest, has brought untold misery upon the human race because in an evolutionary scheme, man has no dignity. In other words, in the words of the behaviorist psychologist B.F. Skinner, which is, by the way, the title of his book is Beyond Freedom and Dignity. In his book, man is seen as the product of evolution and has no dignity and freedom. He is simply a more highly evolved creature than the rats that he Skinner used in his studies. Hitler was a great believer in evolutionary thought and carried it out to its logical conclusion, the murder of all undesirables. By the way, from an evolutionary perspective, just how did angels come into being? 
How did angels evolve? Tell me. These incorporeal, meaning not physical, unique creatures. And how did the demons, the evil angels, come into existence? And while we're talking about it, just how did the human soul evolve? Man is said to be body and soul. And at death, the body returns to the dust from whence it came, and the soul goes to its eternal abode, heaven or hell. And while we're talking about it, how did heaven and hell evolve? To the theistic evolutionists, we ask, please explain the creation of angels, Satan, demons, the soul, heaven and hell, on an evolutionary, materialistic basis. And don't tell me that this is a case of God's special supernatural creation either. Because if you admit this, on what exegetical basis do you have to make man's origin rooted in an evolutionary framework? Mr. Theistic Evolutionist, you have no right to pick and choose when to use special creation or not. Let's talk about the meaning of the days of creation. The Westminster Confession of Faith said that God created all that there is in the space of six days and all very good. How are we to understand the days of Genesis? Are they periods of 24 hours? Or can they be of longer duration, such as millions of years? The Old Testament Hebrew scholar of the 20th century, E.J. Young, has stated forthrightly, quote, Genesis is not poetry. The man who says, I believe that Genesis purports to be a historical account, but I do not believe that account, is a far better interpreter of the Bible than the man who says, I believe that Genesis is profoundly true, but is poetry, end of quote. Even the liberal expositor Marcus Dodds wrote, quote, if, for example, the word day in these chapters does not mean a period of 24 hours, the interpretation of Scripture is hopeless. End of quote. Amazingly, Dobbs does not believe in what Genesis says, but he knows very well what it actually does say. Kyle and Delitz in their Old Testament commentary have said this about the Days of creation. They said, quote, If the days of creation are regulated by the recurring interchange of light and darkness, they must be regarded not as periods of time of incalculable duration of years or thousands of years, but as simple earthly days. It is to be observed that the days of creation are bounded by the coming of evening and morning. End of quote. In speaking about the natural meaning of the text of Genesis, Kyle and Delich also say, quote, Exegesis must insist upon this and not allow itself to alter the plain sense of the words of the Bible from irrelevant and untimely regard to the so-called certain inductions of natural science. End of quote. They understood. Kyle and Delich understood the problem. Why don't so many so-called Christian evolutionists understand the problem? 
Robert Shaw, first published in 1845, his excellent and exposition of the Westminster Confession of Faith. It is a book every Reformed pastor and elder should have in their library. In his exposition of chapter 4 of creation, Shaw says this about the days of creation as taught by the confession. He says, quote, Some have held that all the changes which have taken place in the materials of the earth occurred either during the six days of the Mosaic creation or since that period, but it is urged that the facts which geology establishes prove this view to be utterly untenable. Others have held that a day of creation was not a natural day, composed of 24 hours, but a period of indefinite length. To this it has been objected that the sacred historian, as if to guard against such a latitude of interpretation, distinctly and pointedly declares all the days that each of them had its, quote, evening and morning, thus it should seem expressly excluding any interpretation which does not imply a natural day in the quote. Of great import on understanding the meaning of the Westminster Standards, we should know what the original writers believed. And how should we interpret the Confession when it says that God created all things out of nothing in the space of six days? Did the divines believe in a 24-hour day? Did they believe in a biblical chronology as Bishop James Usher believed? We get a very clear affirmation from the divines that were both voting and non-voting members of the assembly that they believed that days were natural days. The following information that I'm about to give you is drawn from David W. Hall's article titled, what was the view of the Westminster Assembly Divines on Creation Days? He says in his article, Of the voting members of the Assembly, one is John Lightfoot, who in his book, His Works, states that the days were 24 hours. John White, another Westminster Divine, states, quote, Here were it, Yom is distinguished from the night. It is taken for a civil day, that is, that part of 24 hours, end of quote. John Lay, another Westminster divine, said, The word day is taken from the natural day consisting of 24 hours, which is measured most usually from the sun rising to the sun setting, end of quote. Now, a note is made that Lay followed Bishop Usher in other matters of chronology as well. Thomas Goodwin, another Westminster divine, said in his works, in his book, The Works of Thomas Goodwin, he demonstrated a commitment to a very literal reading of the meaning of days. William Tweese, who was the first moderator of the Westminster Assembly, and one of the most revered theologians of the assembly followed Bishop Usher's chronology and actually thought it possible that Adam fell on the seventh day, following a 24-hour sixth day. Daniel Featley, 
another Westminster divine, stated that each of the six creation days were normal 24-hour periods. Interestingly, Featley wrote the most popular devotional piece of its day, undergoing nine editions. He encouraged the saints to thank God for each day, which had its corresponding history for the days of creation. One of the Scottish divines was Robert Bailey, who wrote a major work on the historical chronology of the Bible. One of the topics in his book is what season of the year was the world created? Were the years of Moses equal to ours? Were the fathers following an ancient chronology? Bailey believed in a literal six-day creation. And the renowned Scottish divine, Samuel Rutherford, writer of the great book Lex Rex, he wrote elsewhere that seas ebb and flow, and winds blow, rivers move, heavens and stars, these 5,000 years. This means Rutherford adopted a creation year of 4004 BC, B.C., advanced by Bishop Usher. And speaking about Bishop James Usher, he was Archbishop of Armagh of the Church of Ireland, and he was invited to the Westminster Assembly, but he never attended. He is best known for his massive work on the chronology of the Bible, whereby he asserted that the creation was in 4004 B.C. One of the leading divines of the Westminster Assembly was Jeremiah Burroughs, who said, quote, For he, Christ, was prophesied for 4,000 years before he came into the world. End of quote. <clears throat> the point of mentioning all of these comments by the Westminster divines is to show that the original writers of the Confession of Faith believed in a literal day of creation and fundamentally in the biblical chronology as set forth by Bishop Usher. The point is, all those churches who acknowledge the Westminster Standards as part of their constitution must take exception with the confession at this point if they do not believe in a 24-hour period for the days of creation. We cannot make the confession say what it does not say. Either we subscribe to it or we don't. Loose subscription leads to the present-day problem where we have a radical view of creation for some that has led them to advocate some kind of evolutionary thought. When we play loose and fast with the confession and with Scripture and the proper hermeneutic to understand them, we are already on a downward slope, and the end will not be pleasant. In the next lecture, I will pick up on understanding what I say to be the genuine thing with some more thoughts on why we should interpret the days of creation as literal 24-hour days and why we should trust the biblical chronology. Thank you.